good morning. We are wrapping up, magically wrapping up our time in Ephesians. Um, so I have a, a three-year-old, if you're new and, and don't know that. If you've been here for more than three minutes, you know that because he's chaotic and running everywhere. Um, but because, you know, having kids, one of the things you do is you, you start to re-watch, like, kid movies that you watched when you were a kid, or maybe even a little older, embarrassingly, right? Uh, and so one of, the, one of the movies that I watched again this week that had been a while uh, was the movie WALL-E. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie WALL-E before. Right? If, it's, if it's new to you, the premise is pretty, is pretty cool. It's about this little uh, trash compactor named WALL-E. Um, and his journey through, through space, and it's in a world, it's kind of a dystopian world. For kids, if you're like a little kid, it's a really cute story about a trash compactor that falls in love with another robot uh, named Eva. Uh, if you're an adult, it's a dystopian movie about the possible future if we don't take care of the environment and the whole world goes kaput. So it's like a very different film depending on what age you are, right? So I'm watching this with Graham, and he's just excited about the robots to space, and I'm thinking, like, man, if we don't take care of our garbage problems, like, right. So essentially what happens is, you know, the, the world becomes so overrun with garbage that mankind can't live on it anymore, and so they have these big kind of spaceship cruise ships that they put humanity on to leave Earth until these little robots can clean it up enough that it's safe to come back. And every once in a while they send these probe robots out to check for life, for plant life, and those kinds of things. Right, and eventually, you know, it gets them back. But what happens is the, the cruise ship was supposed to be gone for maybe a couple decades, uh, and life never gets possible on Earth, and so years go by, and eventually, you know, people have been on this kind of cruise ship in space for 700-plus years, and things begin to happen. They start to, you know, not really remember Earth. You know, generations have come and gone on the ship. This is kind of their life now. This is the world that they know and they get really lazy in it, and the ship's kind of designed to entertain them to death all the time. And so, you know, people that boarded looking like normal humans, eventually they all start to look like this. They're all just large folks sitting in floating chairs uh, at a beach that no one gets in the water because none of them can walk anymore. They have their own individual screens. Like, if you have teenagers, like, we're kind of already there, right? But the point is, they've become kind of atrophied in a way, right? They're, they're not really kind of used to life the way it's supposed to be lived. And so towards the end of the movie, they all end up coming back to Earth. And you can see them kind of wobbling out and like learning how to even walk again for the first time and how to do life. They're not used to how life works, really, right? They've been in this kind of fantasy land for a while and have to figure it all out again. We've been looking at Ephesians for a few weeks now, and this is our, our, our last week. And Paul, you know, in it, he lays out the gospel, and then halfway through the book, he pivots from talking about the gospel to talking about how we live it, right? And so for the last few weeks, we've been looking at how do we live this gospel truth out as within a church body? How do we do it within family? Last week, we talked about marriage, right, and all those kinds of things. And as we start chapter 6... He gives a kind of a little bit of a time to talk about two more outside of marriage. The first is children, right? He talks about how we can live the gospel through our children and how we parent them. Uh, we can do that both inwardly, like within our own family. So when we parent our kids with grace, like firm, steady discipline, but grace uh, is part of parenting that kind of can demonstrate the gospel to your children, right? I love you. I discipline you, but there's grace in what I do. 
right? And then you can also be outwardly, like the way that your family functions to the world outside of you is a demonstration of the gospel. And then he gets into the idea of servants, right, which we, we don't really, I hope none of you are functioning in, in, a, in a slavery context today, but I think of like, I, I apply that to like a work scenario. Like, do you have a, a place where you work that, you know, you're submitted to, to a boss or somebody and how do you relate to them? And if they, if they do things not the way you like, how do you talk about them outside of work and those kinds of things? Like, where's your character in your professional life and how does it display the gospel truth to those around you as coworkers? So he kind of deals with those and then he closes the book with this section that is kind of famous on the armor of God, right? And it's, it's that section, that part, that 10, verse 10 through 20, that I want to spend some of our time on this morning. Because I think, like, Wally is a, is a funny movie about how people have gotten atrophied and used to a certain way. But Paul here, his conclusion, he comes to this point that we, we kind of have an apathy when it comes to the spiritual realm of things. Just like they no longer could remember how life actually worked, how to do basic things like walk, I think we, we know of the spiritual realm. We talk about the spiritual realm and the fact that there is something bigger than just what we see in front of us in the physical world, right? Our homes, our cars, our jobs, our kids. But a lot of times, like, our day-to-day lives don't reflect that, right? We kind of live as if we... We function just in this physical space, and that's all there there is. And so Paul here um, gets into the heart of that issue. He kind of gets at the, how how do we deal with this spiritual atrophy? And what what is this whole thing of the spiritual realm really about as Christians as we engage with it? And then we'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll talk about why he ends a book about the gospel with this discussion and how it kind of applies to us as we go through our lives. So let's stand together and we'll just read through Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10 all the way through verse 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual evil or spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all the perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If the slides went a little haywire, don't worry about it. We'll get there. Uh, We're going to come back to all that. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. 
If the idea of, of spiritual warfare, which is kind of where this passage is heading, right? If that seems odd or uncomfortable to you, if that's not a realm that you live in very easily, don't, don't worry about that so much. You are definitely not alone. As a matter of fact, this passage would have been just as kind of uncomfortably new and shocking to Paul's original hearers in Ephesus and all around you know, biblical times as it would be to us today. See, the, the Israelites, they were used to fighting physical battles under the Lord's guidance and care as they went, right? From the very beginning, when, when the Lord calls the Israelites into existence, they multiply, they, they grow under the thumb of Egypt, and then he carries them out. He's fighting the Egyptians literally through plagues. For most of the Israelite lifespan as a nation, they knew who the enemy was, they could see the enemy in front of them, and then they watched as the Lord delivered them from that enemy, right? Whether it was the Egyptians or, you know, as they entered into the land of Canaan and all the people that they had to drive out of the land, or when they were captive under the Assyrians or the Babylonians, uh, when we get to Jesus' time, when they're under the oppression of the Roman rule, whatever the enemy is, the Israelites are used to serving and walking under God as he deals with their real physical earthly enemies, and God makes to them real, physical, earthly promises. What does he say? If you're faithful to me and you obey my commands, I will give you the land, right? They're after physical things. God makes physical promises, and he has physical, real, in-world expectations of them for those promises to occur. As much as the Israelites struggle in their obedience throughout their entire history, right? God's people in old and beginning of New Testament times they have a pretty clear path set in front of them as to what they are to do, who they are to fight, how they are to fight them, and how they are to live. Right? And so here comes Paul, and he starts to say things like, look, our, our warfare is a different kind of, it's a spiritual warfare. And they're like, well, what is, well, who's our enemy? All right? If you think about it, that's one of the reasons that Jesus was ultimately crucified. The people turned on him because they wanted somebody that would come and deal with their real enemy, the Roman rule, to reestablish this earthly kingdom. Right? We talked about that at Easter time. It was the shock that he said, no, like, I, I'm, I've not come to be a king of the, whatever kingdom you've got in your mind here. My kingdom is bigger than this. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. It's so much more beyond what you can ask or imagine, and so they don't understand, and they crucify him. And so if you're, if, if you're talking about spiritual warfare and immediately makes you be a little bit uncomfortable, just know that you're in good company with the entirety of the Israelites. Right? You're, you're, you're doing just fine. Right? But that's where we are today. Jesus did things different. He opened their eyes to a kingdom that was bigger than than this world, a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. And God's promises to his people of today looks a lot different than it did at that time, right? His promise to us is eternal life in a way that we really can't understand, right? Because eternal life is not a thing that earthly conceptually makes sense to us, right? You live, you die, and that's it, would the naturalist say, right? And so this, this approach that Jesus brings, this new message that he brings to the people when he comes to usher in his kingdom is so radically different. And what Paul here is emphasizing is that with the spiritual promises and kingdoms also come spiritual and new kinds of battles. 
The whole of Ephesians has been about how we live the gospel out as a witness in this world. And for Paul, this is the final piece of that whole puzzle. Spiritual warfare is incredibly important to understand, right? Here's how one of the commentators that I read this week puts it. He says, this is a spiritual reality and it's necessary for those of us who want to live out the Ephesians vision in today's modern world. The prevailing materialistic, mechanistic thinking of our age leaves no room for the supernatural or indeed anything without a physical cause. Sadly, many Christians are so influenced by this thinking that even though they give conscious voice to their belief in Satan and spiritual warfare, their lives show no evidence of this reality. They actually live in an unconscious disbelief, and for such persons, this passage provides the much-needed antidote. What Paul is trying to tell us in this passage is, look, there is a war happening that you can't see with your eyes, but you're in it. Like, like it or not, you don't live in peacetime. It's, it's there, and it's different, and to fight in that war looks differently than anything you've ever experienced, right? Like, the military is powerless against this kind of warfare. Like people in the military would say, what, give me an enemy I can kill. Well, this isn't an enemy that you can kill. You don't fight the spiritual enemy the way you fight our earthly enemies, whatever you decide that those enemies for you are, right? It's a different kind of way of going about it. And so this, this, today what I want to do is spend a little bit of time walking through this packed passage. Paul gets into so much stuff about how we are to fight as people in a spiritual war. And for that, we'll go through it verse by verse. And so people in the booth, you don't have to scroll through this one. Um, I didn't tell you that before we started the service, but we'll go through kind of verse by verse and look at what each one says. So here's 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord. Most of the time in history, in your growing up, what are you told to be? He said, be strong. Right? Suck it up. Get back up. Pick yourself up. We are told our whole lives to grow in strength within ourselves, to do things on our own strength, to not rely on other people, but to rely on our own strength, to hone our strengths, to develop our strengths to take our weaknesses and turn them into strengths. Most of our lives, we're taught to use our own strength. But here, when Paul starts, before he even gets into any details, he just says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. See, Paul's call to war is quite different. He says to be strong in the Lord. Our strength does not come from us, from within. We don't fight this spiritual battle with our own power our own ability, our own might. We use the Lord's might. Hear this clearly. God does not expect you to fight your spiritual battles on your own, with your own strengths and with your own skill set. He tells you to use his strengths and his skill set. Right? In his strength and might, it's that you and I are going to fight the enemy off. And that's a huge load off because the enemy on your own is unbeatable. You and I, together or separate, are entirely powerless in any way to battle the enemy that we are talking about, the devil. You can't. Many of you have tried. How many of you have unresolved sin in your life that you just, no matter what, try as you may, you just can't get it out? Like it keeps sucking you back. The temptations that hit you day in and day out, whether they're large or small, 
right? And you just go, man, like, I'm just right back to where I started. It's like no matter how much I try to keep away from the things that God doesn't want me to be in, I just get sucked right back in. It's because you cannot fight the devil with your own strength. He is more powerful than you. He is smarter than you. He is stronger than you. He is more conniving than you. He knows you better than you know yourself. The enemy does. One of the greatest books that I would recommend that you read when it comes to this kind of idea of spiritual warfare, and it's not biblical, so don't hear me saying this is Bible, but if you ever have the chance to read The Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, um, it's one of those things that I try to read every couple years. Uh, it's, it's this fake letters that are between a demon that is in charge of a, of a person and his supervisor. They're writing back and forth about tempting this human away from Christ and kind of strategizing how to do it. And you read it and you go, wow, the devil does that to me all the time, all the time, right? And you start to realize it's one of the, the glimpses that we get into just how brilliant the enemy can be, right? I would heartily recommend you read that book. It'll bring you to tears when you think about the ways that Satan has been active in your life in the ways that you read. And you go like, yep, I've been there. Yep, he's put that thought in my head. Yep, I believe that without even thinking about it, right? Yeah, that's how I talk to my family, and I didn't even think that that's, you know, that that's why I do it. And then he, just, he picks your brain apart and messes with you. But the enemy is stronger, smarter, faster, more agile, more conniving than you are. You cannot win a victory against Satan on your own and by your own power. You just can't do it. Right? And so to me, the idea that we fight with the Lord's strength is a huge load off my shoulder. And that's the first thing that Paul does before he even gets into any kind of detail. He says, look, this isn't by your own might. It's by the Lord's strength. And if you're going to beat the enemy, you need the Lord's strength to fight the battle for you in a way. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul gives us here a clear description of the enemy that we're fighting. And it seems so mundane, but man, I don't think we understand this verse as a church. I'm not saying Stoprez, just the church universal. Because when we talk about culture out there and the world versus you know christians versus the world man we sure use language that sounds like we're fighting them don't, don't we like our enemies are out there right and paul says no no you don't understand our enemies aren't flesh and blood like there's no one out there that's your enemy that's flesh and blood your enemy is the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over present darkness the people that you think are your enemies are victims of the devil the same way you are. It just looks a little different, right? So what do we think as churches today? Who's the enemy, right? Depending on who you are. Well, maybe the enemy is Republicans or Democrats, right? Maybe the enemy is someone who has a different sexual ethic than you do. Maybe the enemy is somebody who just is, is liberal with terms of morality, who's an activist in a certain area that you think is unbiblical and, and maybe might actually be unbiblical, but those are not the enemy. Those are the people that, that the enemy has wrapped up, that have bought the lies. But they're God's children, whom he made and whom he loves. Right? As a church, I'm not sure that we're going to get anywhere in this world so long as we think that our enemy is somewhere on this earth, because they're not. We have one enemy, and he's fighting a spiritual battle. And when we see people in the world that seem counter to Christianity, what we're seeing is him winning some victories, some small ones, right? 
He's got people wrapped up believing the lies, not understanding how the gospel sets us free, living under individualism and for the self rather than living for the Lord, knowing that the Lord has your best self in mind. We have to understand if we as a church are ever going to get anywhere with, with the gospel, that the people out there are not the enemy. They're the ones we want to seek to love and free from the one who is the enemy. And so Paul states very clearly, look, your enemies are not flesh and blood. They are powers and principalities outside of your viewpoint that are influencing the world around us. And the moment we understand that, what it does is it lets us look at the world with a different lens. Rather than putting our guard up against the world, it causes us to go and try to, to rescue it. The analogy that I've used before is that the church isn't a cruise ship, it's a rescue boat, right? Like, if you're going to be on this ship, don't expect to be comfortable. Expect to be asked to haul bodies in, right? Like, we're going to go out into the rough seas, and we're going to go get the bodies, and we're going to haul them into safety because we love them, because God loves them. Verse 12, 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, done all to stand firm. So here, Paul begins this armor of God analogy that, that many of us have, have read. Maybe you haven't, maybe you have. But he starts off into this analogy of the armor of God. Now, is there like a, a store, you know, a, an ammo store somewhere that has God's armor that we somehow haven't bought yet? No. Like, this is, this is a metaphorical passage, right? And so, Paul here says, as he's already said before, we're going to fight and win this battle with the Lord's strength. And so now, the analogy just flushes out specifically well, when, when we say the Lord's strength, what does that mean? Do we just surrender and say, all right, Lord, you got it, and we just kind of watch God fight? Well, no, we're, we're soldiers, right? So what do, we, what do we take? Like, machine guns? No, right? God's armor looks really different. And so Paul then uses the rest of the passage to describe exactly what the armor is and what the metaphor for each kind of element of it tells us about how we are to live and engage with the world around us in the light of the spiritual warfare. So number 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The first thing is the belt of truth. The truth of God is foundational to the armor, but why? Because the lies of the enemy are his primary tactic. The way Satan fights is by lying to the world around him. Every single person who isn't submitted to God in this world is buying the lies. Satan's not attractive in his true colors. There's no one in this world who, encountering the true devil in the sense of who he is, if he showed his full colors, there's not a person on this earth who would walk that road. The way the enemy gets people to move away from God is by lying to them. You see it in the garden. Did God say that you couldn't eat of any tree? No. Twist the words there. God just wants to make sure that you don't become as smart as him, knowing good and evil. He has to lie. Satan cannot attract with the truth because no one would get on that boat. And so if the primary tactic of the enemy is lies, then the first step in armoring ourselves with the armor of God is to be armed with the truth. The greatest ammo you have is God's truth. No, this isn't the way the world works. This is the way the world works. 
well, this is the way I want the world to work. I really don't care what you want. This is how it works. God made it. This is his truth. That's the first thing. Satan is the great deceiver. He lies. He prowls. He deceives. He makes us believe the things that are not true. And Paul says the foundational thing is to be armed with God's truth. That means we have to know it. So as a people that are to arm ourselves with the armor of God, we have to know what his word actually says. What is God's truth? Right? Not what do you think is his truth off of the Bible study you once attended two years ago. Right? What is the whole truth, his whole counsel? What does he say about who he is and who you are and what the world is supposed to be like and what is or isn't good and what is or isn't bad and how we are or aren't supposed to live and how, what faith means and how he saves us and, and the truth about our, our salvation and all of these things. What is God's truth? You've got to know it. If you're losing spiritual battles, it's because you're buying the lies and the best way to counter lies is with truth. It's not a biblical phrase, but the truth really shall set you free. Right. And so that's the first here. The first foundation of the armor is that belt. And then along with that comes the breastplate of righteousness. The next part of our armor is that we seek to live as God calls us to live. It doesn't say the breastplate of self-righteousness, but the breastplate of righteousness, God's righteousness. Right? When we, transformed by the gospel, start to live the way that God calls us to, the more we live as God calls us to, and the more we forsake the ways of the world, the more we earn the breastplate of righteousness. It acts like a breastplate. It guards our most vital organs. It guards our hearts. Why do you think in, when we have armor in the world today, right, the, the, the chest protection is the thing. If you ever watch like a SWAT team take somebody out, they've got bulletproof like from here to here. In their head. Why? Because those are the vital organs. You get shot in the leg, you're probably fine. You get shot in the heart, game over, right? The breastplate of righteousness. When we live as God calls us to, when we walk according to his plan, when we submit our own desires to his desires, one of the things that happens is it starts to build up that truth, that belt truth in our hearts, and it puts a plate above us that guards us from the enemy's arrows. So as he shoots them, we start to go, no. I've lived what you're saying, and it's not true at all. You tell me that to be selfish is better, to get mine is better, to watch out for number one is better, but I find that every time I give of myself to the world, the Lord seems to take care of me more than you ever could. Right? Living a righteous life over time and seeking to give more and more of ourselves to God, what happens eventually is we build up and we realize that that's the best thing. When do you feel the closest to the Lord? When you're serving him, right? If you've ever been on a mission trip, right? That's the most close you've ever felt to God. Tell me I'm wrong. Right? Why? When we do the things that God wants us to do, when we're living in the life that God wants us to live, it creates this, this breastplate, this, this callous plate that allows nothing from the outside to come in because, man, we just know better because we've been trusting God's promises. And we realize, no, those are lies and this is true. And I'm living in the midst of it. I don't just believe it because I've read it in a book, but I believe it because I've lived it out and seen that it's so. Right? And so the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, giving by the gospel of peace. As shoes for our feet, we are to put on the gospel of peace. When I think about what kind of shoes I want to wear in a battle, the gospel of peace is not an apt metaphor that comes to my mind. 
I think of steel-toed boots, impenetrable, preferably with something spiky on the front, so when I kick you in the skull, it does damage, right? I think of a shoe that is in no way meant for leisure or, or just relaxing. It certainly isn't peaceful, right? Like, I have yard shoes that I wear when I'm out cutting and, and dealing with power tools and stuff, so I'm like, if, if, if a saw hits that shoe, it's not going to cut my toes off, right? Those are not comfortable. I'm not running a marathon in those. I'm not going to put my feet up and watch TV in those, but they protect me. That's what I think of with feet, but that's not what Paul is saying here, right? Paul here says that our shoes, what helps us move about in the battle as we go out, what keeps us on our feet and swift should be peace. What he's talking about here is our battle strategy. We are to fight with peace. That is so radically different, right? We are to radically demonstrate how God's love and peace destroys the love of the enemy. So that means when we go out there and the world lives contrary to the gospel, instead of berating it, we ought to offer something better. Right? We ought to love. I'm not saying we don't ever reprove or correct something out there. I'm not saying we ought to fall on our sword every time we're out in the world. But for the love of Christ, can we just stop berating people everywhere and think that that's somehow going to do anything? No. We love. We smother them with the love of God when we go out there. We make them wonder why. Because that love doesn't make any sense in the world of, of Satan's kingdom. There's no room for that love. It's incredibly counter to anything that the enemy would offer to the people that are under him, that are under his spell. And so when we love radically those who don't deserve it, when we love radically those who wrong us, that's why God tells us, love your enemies. Right? It's a shock to their system. They don't understand it. It's unfathomable. I'm always amazed when you see like, like court cases where you know, someone was murdered and the family like stands up and offers forgiveness in the courtroom. I can't imagine, I pray someday that, God forbid if that would happen, I'd be able to do that. But I can't fathom being able to do that in the moment, to offer that level of forgiveness. But man, that love ought to shock the system of a perpetrator, wouldn't it? Sitting in jail cell, and how can they forgive that? How? How can they love me in the midst of that? It makes you think. Our feet are to be peace. When you go out there as God puts, God's foot soldiers, peace ought to be the primary aura that guards, that, that defines who you are when you're out there. And that, my friends, not to meddle again, but every once in a while we come back to this, that's true in person and that's true online as well. Right? Are you peaceful online in your interactions with people? God tells you you should be. Most of us are not. In spiritual battle, oftentimes we are not very peaceful. We shout louder and uglier than the world does. And we think whoever yells loudest somehow is going to get somewhere. Instead of trusting that when we engage the world peaceably, and we trust that the Lord will move, that he actually will. Our feet are to be peace. 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Next, Paul takes us to the shield of faith. A Roman shield was a pretty large shield. They were about two feet across and four feet. They kind of like, if you went like this, you could probably guard your whole body, right? And you'll see like the Romans, they would, they would kind of advance forward with these shields and they could take out really anyone because they were this impenetrable force. Uh, and it stopped the flaming arrows and swords and things that were being swung at them and kept them alive. And in battle, we have to hold fast to our faith because it tells us that the enemy can't actually touch us. If you have a faith in Christ, 
you are invincible. Maybe not in this life, but in the next. Do you realize nothing can happen to you that in any way affects your eternity? This world cannot touch you. Sure, it can sting and it can make us feel a certain way. It could even cause death in this life. But for the Christian, that just means eternity with Jesus sooner. I got to tell you, if I have a choice between dying tomorrow and dying 20 years from now, I'm not suicidal, but I'll take tomorrow. Right? And you might say, well, what, don't you want to see your kids grow up? I said, I love, I love my kids with all my heart, but I love Jesus more. And if it's a choice between Jesus and kids, guess what? I'll go be with Jesus any day. Right? My only hesitation would be worried about their sake. I'm not worried about me. People ask me, like, what do, you, what do you want your funeral Sunday to look like? I don't care. I'm going to be with Jesus. You can bury me in the backyard for all I care. Right? I'm not worried about those things. If we have faith, one of the things it gives us is a confidence that no matter what happens in this world, if you go out there into battle and you get utterly decimated by the world and chewed up and spit out, it can't ultimately touch you. Right? It can't. Our faith in Christ guarantees us victory. Can you imagine? There is no other battle in this world that you go into knowing that you've won already. But yet we're so afraid to even pick up a sword and go. Out of fear of what? Failure that we're guaranteed isn't going to happen? It's crazy. Our faith is our shield. And along with that, in 17, you take up the helmet of salvation and then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet is the other piece of that, right? Salvation is the final puzzle. So if somehow, right, as we're harmed in this world, the Lord protects us and cares for us and and bandages our wounds, but if we should lose our life, ultimately, our salvation is the final piece. It's the helmet that guards everything. The world can take us out, but it can't take us out, right? Right? There's no losing here for Christians. We're fighting a battle that has already been won. He just invites us to be part of it. And finally, the sword. It's the first real offensive weapon. Have you noticed that most things so far are defensive parts of the armor? Right? We've got helmets and shields and feet can, I guess, kind of be offensive in a way. But here's the first offensive weapon. And the weapon is God's spirit. When you go out to fight the spiritual battles, to witness to the gospel, the spirit goes ahead of you. And the spirit is the offensive part of your armor. You realize when when you go to have hard conversations with people in faith and you step out, like that the spirit goes ahead and works on them. Grandma Christmas time watches this show called Prep and Landing. It's like the it's a cartoon about the elves that go and get the house ready for Santa to get there. <laughs> you know, they like go and they check that the cookie temperature is right and that there's no kids awake and all those kinds of things, right? Like the Holy Spirit is our prep and la- like it goes in and takes and preps the world for us to come and do what God calls us to do. When you go have conversations with somebody, the Spirit has already been working in their lives. They've already brought other people ahead of you to start planting seeds. And as you work and, and talk to people and you share the gospel in hopes that they might come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, right? Maybe it takes 34 people to get them that the Lord will use to get them to Christ. And you're person number 16. Maybe you're one. Maybe you're 34. We have no idea. The point is that God calls us to be the soldier and he's got the battle plan. And he just says, go, have the conversation. The spirit goes ahead of you. Pick up that sword. It's a pretty good one. 
It is sharp and double-edged. And just go and step out in that faith. Paul closes the whole book then with a petitioning prayer. He petitions the reader to constantly be in prayer, to stay connected to the source of life, to, to God, as we continue to try to work this whole armor thing out with fear and trembling to make sure that we're always walking in step with, with the Lord, with the Spirit. Right? What becomes really clear is that spiritual battle looks quite different than the way that we're used to fighting. Right? One of the biggest reasons that Paul closes the book in this way is because the church gets this wrong a lot. One of the things that trips us up is that we fight spiritual warfare with conventional weaponry. And then we wonder why we lose. We think if we can shout at the world the way it shouts at us, that somehow it's going to listen. We think that if we have enough Facebook comments that someone's going to be persuaded. It never happens. I bring that up in sermons a lot. One of these days, someone's going to come to me and be like, I had one. That hasn't happened yet. I'm going to keep bringing it up until someone comes to me and says, I actually had one. No one's ever changed their mind on social media based on your post. It doesn't happen. Get over yourself. Trust me. All it does is make... Side A, more angry at side B. And side B, more angry at side A. Right? The ways that we use to fight battles that are spiritual are not effective. We think we can somehow win the culture war and get a Christian nation back by yelling loud enough. We think that if we can stand up to the opposite side of a protest line, we'll win an argument. We think that if we throw enough scripture at people online that they'll leave the enemy's grasp and it's not working. What Paul is telling us here is that we have to fight the right battle with the right weapons the right way. And God is the only one who can defeat the enemy. And so his armor is the only thing that's going to get you there. That's it. Right? His plan is far less about fighting in the world and far more about ushering God's radically new kingdom into the world and letting it do the talking. This world is not going to come to Jesus because your eloquence persuades it to. This world is going to come to know Jesus because those who already know him live out the gospel truth in a radical way in their churches, in their households, with their wives and husbands and their children and in their workplace. It's, it's when the, the Christian who has an awful boss loves that boss in a way they don't deserve and speaks well of them even to those other co-workers when they don't deserve to be spoken well of who gives them the benefit of the doubt, who demonstrates grace every day in their lives. It's the person who parents their children and when they're just exasperated and they just want to beat their kids into a wall, just takes a moment and says, no, I will show my kid what grace means. Right? It's the person that lives in your neighborhood who believes in everything that you hate. And instead of going over and demolishing them with an argument, you just live a life that's radically different, that has hope, until they come and eventually ask, what's this all? Those are the things that are going to get us there. That's what's going to usher in God's kingdom. People will be persuaded by it. People will see it. People will wonder what it's all about. People will eventually get tired because here's the beauty of the lies of the enemy. Lying only works for so long. Right? The people in this world that are walking the path that the enemy has laid out, eventually those promises are not going to come true. How many stories I could tell you of people who said, listen, I tried to find purpose and meaning in every area of the world, right? It's the story of the prodigal son. I went out there. 
That's the story of Solomon, right? I had every dollar available to me. I, I tried to find it in wives. I tried to find it in wealth. I tried to find it here. And the more you try to find it, you realize it's not out there. Right? If we live a radically opposite life, peacefully, peaceably, eventually people are going to get tired of the lies. And then they're going to look and say, what's this all about? Oh, and we're ready to tell them, right? That's what Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians. He says, the gospel changes everything. It shapes everything about who you are and how you think. And if you just live it out, you don't have to go win arguments. You don't have to go be persuasive. You don't have to win the culture wars. You just have to live this radical faith out, and people will question it and wonder about it and be curious about it and want to know and have it for themselves too. And just be ready to tell them how it works when they get there. It's going to be beautiful. And by the way, this is really hard because our enemy is bigger than you. But that's why we have the armor of God. To help us do what Paul has been telling us to do for six weeks now. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we praise you for your Apostle Paul and his words of wisdom. We praise you that we have texts like Ephesians that show the early church struggling through these things that we still struggle with today. That it's not a, a book of condemnation that ought to make us feel bad about our own Christian life, but that we get, to, we get to case study a letter to a church that shares the same struggles we do. We get to learn how the Lord works through them with that church, how he equips his saints, how he loves his people, and how he equips and loves us today. We pray, Lord, that each one of us might be able to arm ourselves, to put on the armor of God, that we would be a people that are filled with, with the truth, that our belt, the thing that holds our whole armor together, would be your truth and your word, that our lives would reflect your calling upon us, that we might wear a breastplate of righteousness, that as we go into the world, we might seek to proclaim your peace everywhere we go, as our feet move us through this life, that peace might be at the helm of them, that our faith might be our shield and our salvation might be our helmet. And Lord, we pray that as we go out as your soldiers, that your spirit, your sword would go ahead of us to prepare the way. We ask that you equip us to be faithful. We ask that we as a people of Stowe Presbyterian might be known in this community as a radically different kingdom. We don't want people to look at this church and go, oh, that worship is great, or oh, they have the best kids this, or oh, they have you know, really great food as Presbyterians, or any of these things. We want people to look at this place and say, wow, there's, there's like a, a kingdom being lived out there that doesn't look like anything I've ever seen. I want to know what that's all about. Help us and guide us towards that end. Equip us with your armor to serve you and your kingdom. We love you and we praise you. And all these people said, amen.